Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business of Freelancing podcast. Today, we will be discussing budgeting, accounting, and other financial fun. I'm Ruben Lerner, and I'm here today, as usual, with Eric Dietrich. Hey, everybody. And so, Eric, why don't you start us off? Because I'll, I'll tell you, when I started my business, I was like, accounting, finance, I don't know anything about it. I don't want to know anything about it. I'm a programmer. So, A, what was your background on it? And B, is it important? So, for me, I came to do business finance. Like, I always kind of DIY'd with finance for probably way longer than I should have. What happened was when I graduated college, I decided I wanted to kick like personal finance off on the right foot. So I got, I had like a free subscription to like Quicken or something with some computer I bought. I don't remember. But basically I started keeping my own books uh, like General Ledger through Quicken. And that wasn't very complicated. So early in my life when my financial situation was simple, I did my own taxes i did my own books to keep track of my like credit card account and um checking and savings balances and over the years as i added more and more financial vehicles it was just never difficult so i always did that and then when i went off on my own i just kept doing the business's finances so i always gradually learned how to do this stuff and because of that i did it for i would say longer than i probably should have but i came at it from a very diy background and when i think about freelancers, like somebody who may be going off on their own freelancing, I don't think it's that anybody would, like the finances of a freelancer aren't like that much more complicated in most cases than like a personal, a set of personal finances, but it's more, I think a lot of people almost think like, what is there to this? Like I could just keep track of this in a spreadsheet or not at all. And then eventually I'll outsource it. And there are, I think, subtle considerations to be had. Like I do think it's an important topic, but I might be overrepresenting the DIY, like you should get involved. So I'm curious to hear, like, how did you over the years manage not to deal with it? <laughs> so I also did the DIY approach, but I did the do it yourself, ignore it, do a bad job of it in every possible way. I, I had no idea about any of this ever. When I still remember just after I graduated from college saying, oh, I, this was back when I was living in the U.S., I need to pay taxes by tomorrow. Tomorrow's the deadline. So I went over to the public library, got a copy of like the tax form, filled it out. It took me maybe 10 minutes or so, sent it in. And that was, let's call it 10 minutes. Those were the only 10 minutes I thought about money the entire year. I was earning a salary. I was paying off my student loans. I had some money left over in the bank. Wasn't much for me to think about. And so really when I started my business, and I knew I wanted to start a business. I didn't give it much more thought than that. People told me that in Israel, at least to incorporate, which is where I started my business, I need to have an accountant. By law, you must have an accountant for a business, mm. not if you're self-employed. So I went to the accountant someone had recommended, and he asked me, have you ever run a business before? And I said, no. He said, you didn't run a business in the US? I said, no. He said, great. You'll think the way we do things in Israel is very normal. And <laughs> basically, I now have more experience with all this stuff in Israel but from that moment that I opened my business, I basically outsourced everything. I would show up at my accountant's office with a you know, bunch of receipts and other things every month, hand it over to him. He or his bookkeeper or someone would take care of it for me, tell me what I owe, end of story. And truth be told, it's only been in the last, I'm going to call it five to 10 years, but probably closer to five, 
that I've started to take seriously the whole idea overall of understanding the finances, understanding the planning. And I've started to impart that to my kids because I realized that it was it was part of my education that was hugely, hugely missing. But I'll just add like, Still, when I talk to my accountant every year for like the end of year review and he like my eyes glaze over, I don't quite understand what's going on. And it's good enough because like I'm making money, but I'm sure it would be advantageous for me to know more. So it's by law required for you to have an accountant in Israel? Yeah. So if you're incorporated, if you're so, oh, so most gotcha. people, in, right, most people in Israel don't fill out a tax form. The, oh, the only people who fill out tax forms in Israel are the wealthy and business owners. And so if you have a business, um, everyone else just has it taken out at source by like by the tax authorities or by your, by, like you have it taken out as part of your paycheck. And that's that. And most people don't need tax deductions. Most people don't do anything like that. And if you do, it's usually small change and you can deal with the tax authority on your own. But having an accountant then, he has to sign off on the business every year. So it's just, I might as well have him do the bookkeeping and he's going to do my personal taxes as well. So it's all just like mm. under one, one roof. So someone like me who's had a business, like, would never think to do it myself. I don't even think I could legally. So in as an Israeli company, you would either employ an accountant, like if you were big enough, or you have one that's a vendor? That's right. That's right. It's one of those two? Okay. Right. I mean, I could have an in-house bookkeeper. I could do the bookkeeping myself and then just give mm-hmm. my accountant the books that I had kept. I mean, I have friends who have done that, but oh my God, if I did that, I would really be in a disastrous state. Or it would just take up time that I've always known, okay, I hand over the papers, I hand them money, and I magically find out how much I owe. And usually, they usually they don't make mistakes. Here and there, they're like, oh, we're so sorry, we, you know, we overestimated, underestimated. But for the most part, they do a pretty good job. It's really interesting context. I mean, in the U.S., you don't need anyone to sign off on anything technically, but you could really shoot yourself in the foot this way. And I'm not really exactly sure how all this goes in other countries, but I think a lot of freelancers that get off on their own would wonder, like, I send an invoice, I put money into my checking account, what really is there to do? You know, I do TurboTax at the end of the year or whatever it may be. So it's probably worth, I guess, addressing, like, why we would say a freelancer should care about this. And I think in the U.S. or countries that don't have a forcing function for you to get square on your own, one big thing is you can wind up owing the IRS a lot of money if you're not careful. So in the U.S., if you're an employee and that's the background you come from, your employer withholds money from your paycheck. And you don't really have to think about that. At the end of the year, you do TurboTax, you probably get a refund and you go buy a vacation or whatever. If you then flip over to freelance mode, nobody withholds anything from your paycheck. And if you're not careful, you might not realize that you you still have to pay that tax. It's just that you're responsible for dispersing the payment. So it could be that you just don't ever know that you have to do that until the IRS comes a calling. Or it might be that at the end of your first year, you run it all through TurboTax and you start wondering, oh man, why do I owe the IRS $20,000? So I think like that's the biggest one to care is like watching out for hurdles that might come. And then for me, I think there's another subtle reason that freelancers ought to care, which is that starting to think about your business's finances in a meaningful way lets you start to reason about profit Mm -hmm. and not to treat your business like a almost personal slush fund or like, you know, I just take in money and whatever's left after I pay my bills, I guess that's my salary. And that's maybe a more nuanced concern that I can leave for later. But I think it's important to to start thinking about your finances to avoid making blunders uh, that could be like really a problem for you later. And it sounds like in Israel, if I'm not mistaken, they force you to avoid those blunders by at least having someone sign off. 
Yeah, I mean, like, it avoids it to some degree, right? Like, like as you can still blunder in the meantime. Oh, you can. Oh, you can. And so, like, so, so, I'll, be, I'll just give an example based on what you described, which is using the company as your own sort of personal slush fund. So, what was happening for a while, for I'm guessing like two to three years, was my accountant would say, okay, you should take this salary from the company. And so, I would transfer that plus some extra because I'd be like, oh, the company's doing great. And so you can do that. That's known as taking a loan from your company. You then owe the company back um, that money plus interest. Hmm. And so at a certain point, my accountant said to me, okay, you've been doing this now for two or three years, been taking more than you've been asking for. You now owe the company a lot of money. If you keep doing this, this is a huge red light that the tax authority will come in and audit all of your books because they'll be like, you are using this as a slush fund. He's stop this now pay back the money because you're inviting an audit. This is a really bad thing to do. And so after reading me the right act for doing that, um, we got much better about it. We took exactly what they told us to in salary each month. We paid back all those back taxes. And he says now that we're at almost no risk for an audit. And what do you know, there's more money in the company's bank account that we can then take as profit at some point if and when we want to. So this was like, very smart, but it required a stern lecture from my accountant and the realization that you can't just sort of ignore these things. You actually do need to know something about them. That's interesting. It's really interesting for me to hear how finances, the the sort of um, interface of business and personal works different, somewhere different uh, than the U.S. Because in the U.S., there are a few different ways. Like I think the U.S. might be more complicated in terms of how you can set things up and structure them. The way that most people by default would do business is what's called a sole proprietorship. And then you could also form an LLC in the U.S. Both of those situations are legal rather than tax situations. So as far as taxes are concerned, LLCs and sole proprietorships are what are called pass-through entities. The IRS basically says, I don't really care about this. You know, in both cases, you're operating as if you were just an individual that was self-employed. And so you actually do taxes the way you would if you were just, um, you know, a person going about your business versus if you file as an S corporation or a C corporation, there's a different set of requirements of how you and the business personally interface and to make matters even more. So there's your legal status as an entity, which might be like a partnership, LLC, sole proprietor. And then there's the tax status, and there's some but not total overlap. So you can actually be an LLC but file taxes like an S-corp or a C-corp. So let's just, let's, let's just back up for a moment. So what you're saying is if someone's interested in being a freelancer, mm-hmm. there are a whole bunch of different legal and tax frameworks that they have to evaluate using, at least in the U.S., to figure out. And, and that's going to have a huge impact on whether they are a salaried employee of their company whether the company is just an entity that does pass through and that just affects their personal taxes or some other sort of slight variation on those. And so who would you ask for advice and what are the considerations of what you do? Is it where you live? Is it how much money you're going to be making? Is it paperwork? All the above. So I get asked this a lot, like, you know, through blogging and whatnot. And I have a, an opinionated take, which is if you're a U.S.-based freelancer or aspiring freelancer, here's my advice, full stop. Form an LLC. That's it. So yes, there are all these options you can take on. You could ask either or both of a tax pro or a lawyer and get their opinions on the legal ramifications. But the reason I give the advice I do about just start an LLC is filing and operating as both an S-corp or a C-corp 
comes with a rather bureaucratic set of things to do. You have to issue shares, form an operating agreement, and do a lot of legal stuff. Like people will ask me, you know, should I incorporate in Delaware? Almost always, if you're just a freelancer providing services, all of that is way more complexity than you need to worry about. So my default position would be form the LLC so that you avoid liability, because that's one of the main things that an LLC does is it prevents you from being personally sued. But for tax purposes, until you have reason not to, treat it as a pass-through entity. Just you know, pay the self-employment tax. Basically, if you form an LLC as a freelancer, you can still do your taxes through TurboTax. It's straightforward enough if you want. It's also very easy for a tax pro to do taxes for you if you're an LLC. But yeah, in theory, there are, I can think of four different legal statuses and three different filing statuses, and some of those can be combined with each other. So it's a lot to navigate through, but like, I don't see any planet where a freelancer providing services should form a C-Corp. Like, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, okay. By the way, you've now explained something to me because I have an LLC in the U.S., and I never quite understood why... I, I mean, I've been doing this for three years now, having that company. I never quite understood why my accountant was like, well, you don't have to pay per- corporate taxes there. You just pay personal taxes on the income. So that explains like it's an LLC, but it's passed through income. There you go. There you go. Yep. Who says you don't learn things doing a podcast? <laughs> One of the corporate, uh, the, the complexities of starting a corporation is what's known as the double taxation paradigm, I guess, in the US. So if you, if you form a C-Corp, the business itself pays taxes on its profits. And then you as a shareholder of that business, when you pay yourself dividends, you also pay income tax. So that's a downside. That's what I have with my Israeli corporation. Right. That's what I was used to. And so when I asked my accountant's office recently, like, so what about the uh, like business tax forms? They were like, what, what are you talking about? So this makes it all clear. All right. So the first thing, if you're thinking of being a freelancer is you got to figure out the structure and this is not necessarily straightforward, but you can... Like you're looking for the simplest possible way to deal with it. You yeah. don't want to make it overly complex. And right, I can tell you from experience with my Israeli company, having this double taxation thing of having to worry about, okay, I pay taxes from the company and then I pay taxes on my income that I get from a salary of the company. And then I pay taxes separately on dividends that I get. Where dividends are sort of, for those of you who don't know, think of the company as it gets money. And normally we think, oh, the company gets money and it pays it all out in salary, but that's not true. Salary is an expense of the company. But the company can also spend on servers. The company can spend on domain names. And the company still has money left over at the end. That's the whole point of a company. It wants to have profit, meaning after it gives out all this money. And you then, as the owner of the company, separately from being an employee of the company, as the owner of the company, you can take some of that profit, and that's known as a dividend. And that is taxed separately. And at least in Israel, it's taxed at a lower amount than income. So my accountant is telling me all the time, take a low salary, like we take as sort of as low as reasonably can be done. Yeah. And then there's more money left in the company and then I take a dividend at the end of the year. That is also the advice that you'd get in the, like hit subscribe. My business is an LLC that files taxes as an S corporation. And part of the reason is I want to pay myself a salary, but I'd rather take money in dividends because it's taxed at a lower rate uh, among other considerations. It's also good to have something like an S corp if you're doing payrolls in the U.S. and paying salaries. But as a freelancer getting started, none of that's really going to be all that relevant. And I can tell you from experience, you can move into those more complex situations as they come up and become advantageous. I wouldn't burn the midnight oil reading up on these things and drive yourself crazy thinking about these eventualities too much. You can always fix it later. 
and yeah, I would say number one, absolutely go with the simplest thing that you think will work for you. And number two, and I think this sounds like common both uh, to Israel, the U.S., and like anywhere else, one of the most important things that you can do from the beginning, I think, with business finance is to figure out the rules of engagement where your personal finances touch the businesses. How do you pay yourself? When do you pay yourself? What are the rules for that? Because you want to avoid co-mingling, which can get you in trouble, I think, anywhere where basically... So for instance, in the US, if you're running an LLC, you get yourself a business bank account, business credit cards and everything, and you start putting your personal groceries on the business credit card, nobody's going to stop you from doing that. It's legal to do that. But what you are supposed to do mm-hmm. come tax time is essentially, that's to, Reuben, to your point earlier, in the US, that would almost be the equivalent of you taking a loan from the business. The business is buying you groceries, but it's not actually a business expense. So as far as the you know regulatory agencies are concerned, the business did you a favor and you should pay the business back. So I would say from the beginning, one of the pieces of advice I would give and always do give is, as a freelancer, go start a business bank account, have a business checking and maybe a savings account, probably get a credit card, and then keep everything that is reasonably for the business in that and do not mix your business and personal. There's no upside to that. agree. 100%. And I mean, I even went so far as uh, I got advice from someone years ago, maybe this is just the nature of Israeli banks. I put my business account in a separate bank. It is a completely separate entity, completely Mm -hmm. separate everything. I have my personal bank. I have my business bank. I have personal credit card, business credit card. That's funny. Like my kids are used to the, the fact that we have five credit cards between my wife and me, where we have each of us has a personal business card, and then we have a U.S. credit card that we use for things there. And they're like, how can it be that you have to keep track of so many? And because we have to separate these things out. The advantage, though, is that if you're buying something on the business credit card for the business, and it's a business expense, then it affect, it, come, it doesn't come out of your personal salary. It's still your money, as it were, because it's your company and like you're the freelancer. But you don't have to pay taxes on it. And it doesn't come out of, it comes, you could think of it as coming out of your gross rather than your net. It's not exactly true, but think of it that way. And so we, we expense everything we possibly can. Like our car is owned by the business, the newspaper subscription, the business, the internet connection is from the business. But exactly as you said, if we want to buy groceries, no way, except it turns out like an everywhere is different. So if we want to buy our coffee and our tea and some cookies for the office, we can do that. I have a friend who said, oh, and you should be buying your work clothes for the business as well. So I asked my accountant and he said, here's my take on that. Yes, you can buy work clothes for the business, which means clothes that have the business's name embroidered on them. And I was like, I was going to say, you need to get logos. Exactly. And that's where also you're going to have different accountants giving you different advice. And you can decide how risk averse you are or not uh, in taking that advice. That is really the truth when it comes to business expenses that I've found over the course of time. I tend to be pretty risk averse. I don't want to live my life with the fear of the IRS coming after me. So I probably leave deductions on the table that I could claim, but that's how I prefer to do it. If I think of starting out as a freelancer, um, you're probably not going to have a whole ton of expenses. There will be some. And in the US, at least, if you're doing things like working out of your home office, there are ways that you can claim part of your rent or part of your mortgage as a business deduction. But it's pretty simple, the freelancer's finances, where you're probably sending invoices and collecting payment some number of times per year. 
and then you have a handful of um, software subscriptions and tools of the trade. And then if you're doing stuff like buying a computer or laptop that you're working on, I would do that on the business's credit card. But it is pretty, I guess, straightforward in terms of maybe how you would keep your books. So my take on that is if you don't like doing that, it like keeping books like that can be one of the first things that you outsource in your business if it frees you up to do things that are more of a value add, or you can DIY it. So I think in terms of like what you're actually doing in terms of bookkeeping, it's pretty straightforward. You just have a decision. Do I delegate this or not? I mean, is that your take, like just from the bookkeeping in the beginning? Uh, Again, I'm very happy that I let someone else deal with this. Also, it served as a bit of a sanity check on what I was doing, because Mm -hmm. if I like lose receipts, if I like, so if I buy for something on the credit card, I still need the receipt and give it to the, uh, give it to the accountant. So if I fail to give them that receipt, fine, it's a pain that I have to look it up, but someone's going through my books, making sure that everything matches up as opposed to me undoubtedly messing it up myself, not having anyone look at it, and it'll just be the government eventually correcting me, which is the least pleasant way to, to do that. So yeah, I mean, if, if you're finding, like there are definitely people who love accounting stuff, who think it's like really great and are very good at it. And so if, if you're one of those people, sure, go for it yourself. But I, I'm, I'm very comfortable from the beginning having had someone else do it. I think it saved my tail a lot. It strikes me based on what you're saying there that a good inflection point for maybe when to delegate and to whom to delegate because you could do one of two things i could think of like you could say i don't really like sending invoices and and there's some clerical work here i'm going to hire a va to do this that's a different kind of delegation than saying i'm going to go call a bookkeeping service uh who's probably going to be more expensive than a va but that comes with some knowledge and expertise where they might push back and say well what do you mean these groceries are a business expense no they aren't your VA is just going to say, sure, whatever, boss. There might be a point where you start to wonder, is this expensable or not? Should I be doing this? That might be the moment where you think about talking to a bookkeeper to not only get help with the labor of it, but to get some advice because they have experience with it. Right. And in terms of the invoicing, invoicing is, I always call it my most profitable hour of the month because you can do a lot of work. And if you don't send an invoice for it, then no one's going to pay you. That's not entirely true, but that's mostly true. And so you're going to have to figure out a system for sending invoices, for keeping track of who has and has not paid them. When you get a payment, you have to send out a receipt. In Israel, actually, you need, once again, like the, legally speaking, you must use, nowadays everyone's doing it online, but you must use an, a, a software that's been approved by the justice ministry um, that mm. fits certain criteria. You can't just like use any pad of paper. You can't just use any software needs to have like non-repeating invoice numbers, it needs to be audible and so forth. So I've been using it for a few years and I do 100% of the invoicing myself. I send out the invoices. When the money comes in, I notice it. I send them a receipt. It's a little more complicated than that, Israel, but I do it. I have a really busy consult, like solo consulting practice and I can take care of all this myself. So I find it really hard to believe that someone who's listening to this will not be able to do it themselves. You might be able to delegate it. You might want to. I actually don't mind doing it myself, especially with the electronic stuff. Recently, my wife has said that maybe she'll take care of it, and maybe, but it doesn't like that's not so bad. And in the U.S., like for my U.S. company, I like many, many, many other people have been using Stripe for invoicing, mm-hmm. and I don't know what you use, Eric, but I, I find it like super easy, especially for a few one-offs. It, it, it like even as a credit card link, people can pay. It works really fast. These days, for me, I don't have a hand on hit subscribes finance, so um, <laughs> I know we just did a switch over to QuickBooks, and that does invoice generation, but we have staff 
um, right. that handles that kind of stuff. How many invoices do you send a month? Probably a few hundred at this point, I'm guessing, yeah? Or at least a few dozen. Uh, on the order of a few dozen. It would be without staff and or automation tools, it would be sort of prohibitive. Less even because of how many invoices head subscribe sends to clients, which is, you know, that, yeah, on the order of dozens. But uh, we, our accounts payable is on the order of hundreds of people that we're paying. There's quite an operation there, but I, I can think back to either the earliest days of hit subscribe or my solo consulting. I used to use Quicken Home and Small Business to keep track of the finances. And then I actually like, I would have done something about this over the years, but I used to have this like word template that I would use for invoicing that had like a nice logo letterhead on it. And I could just update a few forms and fire one of those off as a PDF, um, I probably would have eventually adopted something else if I had kept doing it. But um, I I think it's a good point to say that like, if you're a freelancer and you're sending a couple invoices a month, maybe max for the typical freelancer, it's not going to take up enough time that you're even going to probably get a return on your investment for paying someone else. Like I would say you're better off creating automation and nice templates and processes rather than paying someone to generate your invoices. Right. You know, one thing I think that's worth, touching on when I think about just like what advice I'd give a freelancer. I have a framework that I would suggest when you think about commingling business and personal, when you think about how you pay yourself and all these types of things, I'd suggest doing an exercise where you envision your business and then imagine that you had to backfill yourself, which sounds weird for somebody who's like providing services. But imagine that you hired a similar freelancer who maybe made a little bit less money than you or whatever. And this person was put into your role, it becomes easy to reason about profit and other sorts of concerns when you do that. So, like, imagine what this does is as um, the sole proprietor of a service business, you're both the CEO, if you will, of the business and also the shareholder or the owner. You do those two things at once without realizing that they're two separate roles. But if you hired someone as a backfill to do everything you did, now you become the shareholder. And that person is the CEO. And you start to be able to think about what that means for your business. And for instance, if you think about like you have to decide on a salary to pay yourself, well, imagine it's somebody else. You have to pay that person a salary to do this work. Whatever is left over as a distribution or dividend that you take out, it's, you know, you own this business the way you might own a stock of Starbucks. And periodically that business pays out dividends. That's what you get as a shareholder. So that can help you reason about profit. It can also help you reason about what is um, an acceptable personal or business expense. Like, imagine you're the shareholder of the business. Would you want your CEO buying his or her personal groceries? No. Would you want them buying ink for the printer? Sure, that makes sense. So I've found that can be a helpful framework, even just in a solo practitioner business. I love that. I'll, I'll go one further, which is, uh, so my, my wife, is a curator at a gallery, like she does art curation. So she's really not doing too much Python training, strangely. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> she can spell Python, but she is on the payroll of the company. And on occasion, I've asked my accountant, can we increase her salary? He says, could you find someone to do what she's currently doing for the company at a much higher salary, much lower salary, or what she's getting now? I was like, oh, okay, well, we're just going to keep her salary where it is. Because you have to be able to have that equivalency. If it's just you, like if you're the CEO, if you're the person bringing the income, you have more flexibility to think about it. But you should be thinking in terms of what am I worth to the company? What should I be getting as a salary? And I think it's very healthy to get a salary and not just, oh, I'll take whatever's left over. 
right? You really think, thinking in terms of salary rate makes you think about it as a business. Makes you say, yeah. oh, I, I've got to get enough income so that I can pay all my expenses. One of the expenses being this guy's salary, where this guy is yourself. Um, and it puts you in the right mindset. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, and again, for years, I did not do that. For years, I was just like, my salary is whatever's left over. Could be a lot, could mm-hmm. be a little. That was not healthy. That was not smart. Yeah, I think that's a great point too, in that it can help you reason about the health of your business. So for instance, let's say that you're a freelancer, a freelance software engineer, and you have, you know, whatever you charge as an hourly rate. And what's going on is at the end of the year, you realize that you took in, you know, let's say $85,000 in revenue and you had like $15,000 in expenses. So your, you know, salary, if you will, at the year end in that situation would be 70,000. Could you hire a senior software engineer for $70,000? Probably not in the US these days. And so that should make you ask yourself, do I have a viable business right now? I couldn't backfill the role that I'm supposed to be doing for the salary. Like, if you were running this as a business, it would be unprofitable. You would have to pay someone more in salary than you're taking in in revenue. And that can indicate to you a few different things. It might be that you just don't fundamentally have a viable business. It might be that you're charging too little. It might be that you're not, quote, billable enough, like you're doing too much overhead stuff. So it's a good reason to check in is to say, like, could I hire a one of whatever I am for a reasonable salary? And if the answer is no, like you're not, not only are you not paying yourself a reasonable salary, but there's something wrong with your business. And I don't say that to be judgmental. It's a good piece of intel to look and think, okay, what do I have to do to fix this? And by the way, it's, let's say you are not making enough money to pay yourself a salary that someone else would get. You might have other considerations. You might say, it's okay. I'm willing to take a lower salary in order for more freedom or to live where I want. And no company would pay me to give me that. You know, no company would hire me on the conditions that I want. So I'm willing to have that trade-off. But you, you do need to like think about it as a trade-off there some, somewhere. Yeah, and another caveat is when you just hang out your shingle, you're, you're probably not going to be making your dream salary. So like, there's a newness <laughs> factor there as well. But what you don't want to be doing is if you decide to go off on your own, just kind of be endlessly grinding. And after you know four or five years, you're making half of what you used to make at a salary job. So being aware that you're separating this idea of salary and profit and thinking about your business in these terms will help you understand, hey, I'm not there yet. Or maybe, hey, I ran well across the finish line. I can pay myself a salary and only work 30 hours a week or something. Might, on the plus side, give you some good options. But I think it is important to think about what you would pay someone in the role that you occupy in the business as the business owner, or generally to separate the idea of being the owner slash shareholder from being the CEO or operator. Absolutely. Something we should, uh, we have this list of things, uh, think, things you might not know about but should be aware of. Here's a topic that I did not think about very much when I started my business when I was 25, which is pension retirement. I'm not talking to my eldest, who's 21. She just finished the army. She's going to be starting university in the next year. And I'm talking to her about starting her pension and putting money away in investments, even if it's a proportion of her income. And she's looking at me like, you know, it's like this crazy idea. What, I have to worry about my income 40 some odd years from now? And the answer is yes, yes. And I just told her last night or this morning, time is your friend. If you put in some money now, then you will see that money 40 some odd years from now and it will have increased in value dramatically. I went to our bank, I want to say about 15 years ago. I said, hi, I just want to double check. Like we're going to, we're okay on the pension front, right? And the the woman at the bank who like had access to our pension information, she basically nearly fell off her chair laughing. She said, you're self-employed 
and you're expecting to have a decent pension, you better start saving right away. And the fact is, most self-employed people, most freelancers don't think about this, don't do anything about this. And again, I was among them. So yes, wherever you live, Israel's national insurance, insurance, the U.S.'s social security, yes, you'll get something from the government. Don't depend only on that. Have as part of your plan, as part of your budget, that you're going to put away money in a pension fund if the laws, wherever you are, allow you to put, have the company contribute. Do that to the maximum you possibly can as soon as you can, because again, time is your friend and it will help you in the long run. Yeah. So for what it's worth in the U.S., for anyone listening, self-employed people can actually contribute a ridiculous amount to it. There's something called like a self-employed 401k or something. If you set it up right, you can actually contribute way more than an employee can. It's something crazy, like 50-some thousand a year if you want. Really? But um, I should ask my accountant about that. I didn't know about that. I wonder if I can participate. It's an interesting option. Um, but you know, to echo that, there are definitely options. I can only really speak to the U.S., but... I have to assume everywhere it's worth the legwork to set up some kind of retirement savings. Honestly, even if it's just like socking money away into long-term, uh, like after tax into long-term investments. Yeah, I agree with that. Make sure you do something because it's not happening for you. And uh, a few years ago, we actually got an insurance agent. And I feel like such a grown-up saying, oh, yes, my insurance agent. But he has been amazing. He's been amazing. He's really found all sorts of like, he's like, oh, you want to put money away in this way, this way, this way for pension. Here are the different pension plans. And he talks about these different products as if they're different models of cars, because that's what he deals with every day. And just as the same person would not want a motorcycle, an RV, you know, or a pickup truck, um, let alone a like regular sedan, he sees these different plans and he says, these are the advantages and disadvantages of each one. So based on what we talked about with him and our risk aversion, we chose some plans and we've been putting money into that. And they'll also know what is the ceiling that you can contribute. What can the company contribute tax-free? There are all these things in the tax code that you are undoubtedly unaware of that really can help you. And I would also say you want to put away as much as possible for the long term. But even if you're not earning that much, get yourself conditioned to put some proportion, 5%, 10% of what you get into such a thing you'll say, oh my God, I can't, I can't, I can't, I'm not making enough, then you need to be charging more. You must have enough income in order to put this away. I really, again, having made this mistake for many years, we're now in a much better position. We're now putting away what we should, but it would have been way easier if we had done it 20 years ago. Yeah, I, I mean, on the insurance front, I can say that if you're, say, the breadwinner with your freelance practice, you know, for, for anyone listening, uh, God willing, it uh, takes off and you're the breadwinner, what would happen if you went away to your family, spouse, whatever the case may be, that income, if you're a service provider, the second you stop doing your hourly labor, the income stops. So insurance is a great way to ask yourself, you know, in that eventuality, what would happen? Because, you know, you, nobody likes to think about the, the macabre, but I think about this or have thought about it over the years, like what would it become of my family if the income just stopped? And I wouldn't want the answer to that to be like, I don't know, let probate sort it out. Like, you, you know, <laughs> you want to think about those eventualities. And really for fairly affordable rates, you can kind of ensure your income, at least, you know, think of it this way at least like six months worth of living expenses or something so that your spouse could transition to a job or figure something out. You don't want that person to be dealing with this in addition to their grief and all the stuff going on that, hey, I also don't have any money. So I think insurance is an important one. And it's like retirement savings. Nobody's going to do that for you. So you need to ask about it. And it's not that expensive for like, 
the type of contingency insurance that I mentioned, I think, if memory serves. We also, as part of the pension plans we got, we also got a good workman's compensation program for exactly the reason mm. you described, that even if I'm not like killed or incapacitated, but if like I can't work for six months, let's say like, you know, I don't know, I burn my hand and I can't type or like heaven knows what. So like you need to make sure that you'll be able to get income during that time. Um, also add like just the life insurance front. We actually spoke to someone at the bank about life insurance and he said, oh, you know, if, he never said like talking about life insurance. It's really like if you die, let's be like clear here. And he kept saying yeah. he didn't want to use that term. So he was like, if the worst thing possible happens, if the worst thing possible happens, literally two weeks after my wife and I met with him, there was a death notice on the bank. He had died. So we were like, oh my God, the worst thing happened, but like, not to us. Um, it was wow. Pretty, it was pretty uh, shocking. I mean, he was an older guy, but even so, even so. Yeah. Uh, the workman's comp is a good one too, because that's like workman's comp life insurance. If you're in the US, your employer almost, I think legally your employer has to provide workman's comp, but your employer pays for a lot of these like not especially sexy benefits that you probably just gloss over in your employment paperwork and maybe don't really think about, but on your own, you have to think about all these things. I mean, you could always run without them, I suppose, but um, yeah, asking yourself what happens if I get hurt and I can't work or what happens if I die. And in my experience, doing something about those things is surprisingly affordable, like more so than you'd think. I, I, we have workman's comp for the business and a bunch of employees, and I don't think it's more than hundreds of dollars per year. Like it's not that much for a bunch of people. If you're listening to this and saying, wait a second. So you're telling me that as a freelancer, I'm going to need to get a bookkeeper and or accountant. I'm going to need to talk to a lawyer. I'm going to need to talk to an insurance agent. I'm going to need to put money aside on all these things. And oh, wait, there's also taxes and expenses. Wow, how am I going to make money? This is why freelancers charge more than salaried employees because you have these expenses and it's not your employer who's carrying them. You're now carrying them yourself and you're carrying all of them. It's not amortized over the hundreds, thousands, or tens of thousands of employees that a company has. And this is why it's, people know that freelancers charge more. And this is why it's okay to charge more. Like the whole system works because everyone knows how this works and they're offloading the risk that yes, they could have a full timer doing your work, but that's not worth it to them because they're not going to need you most of the time. So they'll pay you more knowing that you're then absorbing these costs. So if you're not charging enough to make these expenses, you should be charging more. That is a great point. I mean, as somebody like my business now carries a payroll, we have full-time employees that I administer and deal with the human resources and whatnot. And I can tell you that employees are expensive. And I'm not saying that as a complaint, but the benefits and the things that the employer picks up are pretty numerous. And so as an employer, if I'm working with a contractor, that's a whole lot of stuff that I don't have to do. So it isn't just that you're a freelancer and it's a looser relationship. That's part of it. But in a lot of ways, even with the higher hourly price tag, like a contractor is a lot less expensive to work with just because there's so much less that goes into um, maintaining that relationship with a contractor. So people won't blink. The, the rule of thumb I remember seeing in terms of like people picking an hourly rate, if nothing else, take your annual salary and divide it by 1000 So if you make your $100,000 a year as an employee, you want to have a tracer bullet to fire, I guess, at the hourly market, call that $100 an hour. I know Jonathan Stark wouldn't be a, a fan of <laughs> this line of inquiry. But I, I think that's a pretty standard rule of thumb in the industry. And the reason I bring it up is because it illustrates 
just how expensive. Like if you, if you annualize a hundred thousand or uh, at an hourly rate, a hundred thousand a year is like maybe fifty an hour. So you're talking about almost doubling your hourly rate to go off on your own. But that's because there's just so much expense that you're now going to be responsible for. So I think what we're saying here is uh, go into that with uh, eyes wide open. That's right. That's right. A lot of this seems really daunting. Like it was really daunting to me when I started, and which is why I sort of ignored it. And you will make mistakes. Even the first accountant who asked me if I had done things you know, ever before, he also told me, you will make lots of mistakes. You will lose lots of money. He said, I lost lots of money because I made lots of mistakes. So it's normal and you'll kick yourself and then you won't make that particular mistake again. But this is certainly doable. Like all these things might seem complex, but they're not impossible. And the proof is that lots, lots of people do them. So you, 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 you will be okay, dear listener. Uh, just, uh, just take it seriously and then, you know, Try, try not to surprise uh, the government too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would echo that. I, I Like, it can sound daunting and expensive and all that, but, like, you'll figure it out as you go. And honestly, as long as you're, like, aware, say in the U.S., there's, like, quarterly tax payments that you have to make. If you just are aware of kind of the basics, you probably won't really shoot yourself in the foot. And it's also been my experience. I've like dealt with the IRS on the phone a number of times now in different capacities. The people are fairly understanding of your position as a you know solo or new business owner or whatever. People don't expect you to be sophisticated the way multinational corporations are. So there is even some forgiveness in the system. Like for instance, mm-hmm. we actually this was an accountant. I didn't do this wrong, but filed an S corp election wrong, like a, a form with the IRS. And this over the long haul led to this tale of events where theoretically I owed the IRS about twenty or $30,000. And we were able to get this sorted out fairly easily. And there was even a, um, the IRS has a province that, or um, like an allowance that basically it's like the first time you mess a certain category of thing up, they just automatically waive the fees. Oh, wow. So I, I'm telling that story. Yeah, I got a notice that I owed a bunch of money and then a, a second notice that said, oh, no, you don't. We automatically give you... I forget what they called it, abatement or something. But basically it was that their system just automatically forgave the first incidents of this going wrong. So I'm throwing that out there just to say people are sympathetic to your position as you get sort your way through this. Nobody's expecting you to be a CPA or whatever as you navigate it. So do things um, as buttoned up fashion as you can, but don't let it deter you is what I'm saying. Excellent. Excellent. How do we uh, move on to picks? You got anything for this week, Eric? In terms of topical, I've never actually used this, but like I would throw out something like FreshBooks, or at least what I understand FreshBooks to be, as a lightweight system for doing like invoicing and invoice tracking and finances. It's kind of weird to pick something I haven't directly used, but I guess what I'm picking is more like a lightweight way of tracking this, whatever that is for you. And I don't have a great suggestion for the specifics. I think that's what FreshBooks does, but get a system to help you with invoicing and tracking and all that. Even if you DIY it entirely, just so that you're not using scraps of paper or whatever. Excellent. Um, So I'm going to give two, not at least on our topic, um, uh, picks. One of them is we're recording this on the same day or the day after the Elizabeth Holmes convictions came through. And I guess it was about two years ago, maybe, I read the book Bad Blood about Theranos, one of the most amazing, shocking, riveting business books I've ever read. It is just fantastic. And it's astonishing that she managed to pull off this fraud for as long as she did. And I'm not surprised she was convicted given the weight of the evidence. So if you have not yet read Bad Blood, I strongly recommend it. 
And if we're already talking about lying, sneaky, terrible business people, so the podcast and then the Apple TV series, The Shrink Next Door, I saw the TV series and then I listened to the podcast. Both are amazing and both are, and they're different, but they're basically simply put about a psychiatrist who has a patient, and this is an actual true story, who convinces the patient to let him move into his summer house in the Hamptons, take it over, uh, break off relations with his sister for 27 years, and milk him for more than $3 million, all the while being his psychiatrist. It is truly a shocking story, and the fact that it's true is even more shocking. So there you go. My picks this week are all about terrible people (laughs) who who provide us with entertainment. Anyway, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with yet more tips, information, and ideas about freelancing. If you have topics you want us to talk about, if you have questions, please don't hesitate to be in touch. You reach us through the show page, and we will see you next week on The Business of Freelancing.